everybody, welcome to Studio Wesley Annex, our weekly discussion of the lectionary text. I am Derek Scott III, your host, and this week we've got a, a different kind of shuffle of folks. We're missing Brooke this week, but that's all good. She's doing well. Um, so let me say hey to my team this morning. Uh, let will start with Michael. How are you doing, Michael? Doing, doing okay. Doing pretty good. Awesome. It's early. It is early, friends. We are doing this a little bit earlier than normal for our recording, but it's going to be beautiful. Michael, as you know, it's on the Studio Wesley team. There's also Cameron Garrett, also on the Studio Wesley team. How are you doing, my friend Cam? Oh, I'm great. How are you, Derek? I'm good. It's good. early, uh, but yeah. I've already done one meeting, so all is well. And then, friends, if you were a part of season one, if you saw any of season one, you saw the wonderful, the amazing, the ever uh, extroverted and, and <laughs> joyful, but willing to go to all the hard places, Reverend Christy Holden. Christy, how are you today? Doing great and so glad to be back. Oh, so grateful for you. Christy is the campus minister at Florida Gulf Coast Wesley down in the Fort Myers area and just doing incredible stuff there with uh, and lots of other things. UM's connected and and just uh, just working on campus and all that. So we're just gonna have a great episode. I'm so excited. Um, and so I will open us up in prayer if that is cool. Let's friends, let's pray. Jesus, I just give you praise as we enter into another week. We are in the third week of Epiphany and just pray that you would continue to open our eyes, to open our ears to all the things that you're wanting to show us, um, particularly the beauty of Jesus and the ways that he comes through in the text. Give you praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, we're going to have a great episode. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 1, Isaiah 9, Psalm 27, and Matthew chapter 4. We're in the third week of Epiphany. Um, for some, it's ordinary time. That's beautiful. For us here at Studio Wesley Annex, we are still in Epiphany. We're talking about Epiphany. Yes, it is the third Sunday after Epiphany, but we're in Epiphany, Okay. Come at me. All right. So, Michael, you're going to get us started with the First Corinthians text this morning. So, you're ready to go, my friend. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, yeah. So, I'm doing uh, First Corinthians, First Corinthians, one, chapter one, verses ten through eighteen. Uh, I realized that, like, there's so much urgency in like these biblical texts for me. Like, every time I read the Bible, just because I come from reading, like theater scripts all the time is like every everything just feels very urgent all the time so i like read this letter from paul and i just picture paul as like a panicked jerry seinfeld running around like what are you doing church what are you doing um so yeah uh the let me just read a, a chunk of this which i'm prepared to do um uh you've Let's see. My brothers and sisters, I urge you by the name of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, to come together in agreement. Do not allow anything or anyone to create division among you. Instead, be restored, completely fastened together with one mind and shared judgment. I like the first time I read this, I, I'm like, this sounds incredible. Great. Wonderful. That sounds way easier said than done. And like my cynical mindset's just like, yeah, it's never going to happen. Um, okay, Paul, thanks. But I think at the core, Paul is aware of that also. Like, it's not like an easy, just like, I'm going to say this and everybody's going to do it. Great. Um, he's not trying to fix the problem as a whole, but I do think he's trying to like at least initiate this conversation of shifting the focus away from like individual personalities and like easy opinions and into a more specific focus on what God wants, like 
for the church to represent Christianity as a whole. Um, there's like, I, I use the, like the voice translation and it specifically says like any, any like cult of personality is intoxicating and it's often easier to like claim a f claim to follow a person who can be seen and touched versus like somebody who's not, which makes sense to me. Um, I, and then I like reading further. I love the fact that in verses 12 and 13, he's like, you're all taking sides and some of you are siding with me. Don't do that. You weren't crucified in the name of Paul. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. Like get that, get that out of here. And I, and I hope it's not like a horrible leap in logic to say that when I, when I'm reading that um, I love that, that Paul, or I read this as like Paul using his platform as like a famous religious leader with followers to basically call out the like idolization of himself and others. So like at least, Part, part of me when reading this here is like Paul's using a platform of power he has to break down wrongful focus we have on people and authority. And he's like, yeah, pushing us back towards God. He points a form of, he points out a form of corruption and like this ill mindset and he guides it back to God. And I, I, I don't know, I, I read that and I'm pretty, I'm pretty inspired by that idea as a whole. So it starts off in a way that's like easy to read as like a call to complacency maybe if i can say that like we're like like hey do this and everybody's like yeah okay but i think through paul's actions in what he's saying i actually feel like he's calling people to like stand out against injustice when they see it versus like the complacency that's easy to read when you hear this big like dreamy statement of like we're all gonna come together and that's gonna be so easy um but yeah through his actions i feel like he's calling us in a more direct way so that's uh that's what i got to say Oh, I love it. And I, I love it. That's opening us into this conversation today. Uh, Michael, thank you for that. Um, I, I want to name that it's it, in this moment in the United Methodist Church, which is the, the broad context that Studio Wesley lives in, um, to hear these words from Paul in the beginning of, of the section, the first Corinthians section, is a lot, you know, like, um, don't let there be any rivalries uh, between you. Like, it's a lot. Like, ah, like even this past week for me, like, whoa. And also, I, I appreciate, you know, where you took us because one thing that just came to mind for me is we want to avoid the false unity that comes with complacency, that comes with, all right, then I'll just not speak up about this thing that's important to me. Um, it seems to me, in particular, as you take into account the entire letter that Paul is, is writing, it seems to me that this same mind and same purpose, that's, uh, that's the way the Common English Bible out, uh, translates it, that is going to be a work. It is not a let's, let's, let's sit back for the sake of unity. No, it's let's work for the sake of unity. Um, and take rivalry and division off the table as options. Um, that's my reading. I'm sure there's some folks who don't read it that way, and that's fine. Um, and I, but I appreciate you opening the conversation there because I think that that's going to be helpful as we continue to talk. Let me turn to my friends and see if they've got anything that they want to say in response uh, to what you put on the table, Michael. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredible this way that Paul prophetically calls out complacency with regard to even our own personal 
um, investment in our spiritual path, right? So if I have someone in front of me that I can just follow and emulate and just trail along and ride coattails, that's a very different thing than me needing to um, grapple with how to cultivate a sense of God's presence with me and um, following the leadership of Christ so that I can be in unity with my neighbor um, in an authentic way. And I just really appreciate that Paul has this sort of prophetic moment saying, it's not about that. Remember, it's not about that. And pointing them back toward um, a, a presence-based experience. Yeah, and I, I think it's significant that we're beginning this conversation this way um, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, because part inherent, I think, to MLK, so MLK was a public theologian, and he introduced the language of um, solidarity that's, that's really the result of um, our theological tradition, uh, which is Paul saying, seek unity and without complacency. But you'll notice that MLK in bringing this language to like the wider popular American consciousness within the context of the African-American struggle for civil rights, that there is a call for unity, a prophetic call for unity that simultaneously um, argues that complacency, white complacency, the complacency of the middle class white preacher, for example, um, is anathema to something like uh, actual solidarity and unity. We have opened Annex, like Annex has started. Like, <laughs> I don't know if there's any episode that I'm like, okay, we're here. Like we are so here. I am so excited. Michael, thank you. Oh my gosh, friends. Oh, Cameron bringing in MLK and solidarity. And now I'm reading First Corinthians 1 in a different way just in the last like sec few seconds. I love it. So Cam, go ahead and uh, take us into our Old Testament text for this week, uh, Isaiah 9. Yeah, so I have Isaiah 9, 1 through 4. Um, I'll read a few verses from it. If you look at the little subtitle for this, um, for these verses, it's, it's the righteous reign of the coming king. And I think that that's... Um, I, it makes sense that this text is being used in the lectionary within the context of Epiphany. Epiphany, remember, is uh, is where the church recognizes the inbreaking of God again in human history. So, so when we celebrate and we sort of meditate on the season of Epiphany, we remember that um, in God's inbreaking in Jesus Christ, uh, we set in stark relief um, the false like the, the church would use world, worldly or the biblical tradition would use worldly powers that claim so much authority in our lives. Uh, it, we could put that in a 21st century context and say worldly powers like success or productivity, um, dominance and self-reliance. And during Epiphany, we say that those powers and principalities don't have the last word. Um, so this text, the Isaiah text 9, 1 through 4, the righteous reign of the coming king, I'll highlight a few verses from it. Um, it begins, but there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. I'll read the whole thing. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So God is in breaking into a reality. I think a little bit of background for me made these verses a little bit more powerful. Um, the text begins with uh, anguish and contempt and darkness for folks who lived in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Um, so in in those lands, they were sort of geographically situated in such a way that they were prone to being dominated by outside forces. Um, these were people who were experiencing um, oppression under the hands of foreign occupying forces. And then this text prophetically, the Isaiah text prophetically calls attention to the fact that even in the midst of oppression and marginalization and, and occupation, um, a people recognize that God's inbreaking, real historical, um, actual inbreaking into reality results in uh, joy uh, at harvest, uh, the rod of the oppressor being broken. Um, and I just think that the, after having a little conversation that we had uh, about Martin Luther King Jr. It being the day after Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I think it's cool to remember that the, the biblical witness, when we have popular, wider American conversations about what justice is, what solidarity is, um, a lot of the language that we use is coming out of these prophetic texts, which you wouldn't know because often the Bible is also used as a tool of oppression. But the Bible is this enormous ancient text that also gives witness to um to language that uh folks like martin luther king jr would use um to bring about the real uh real actual historical inbreaking of god in things like the fight for civil rights um so i think that that that's what i'm thinking about with Isaiah 9, 1 through 4, and Epiphany 3. Wow. Wow, Karen. I I am... Um, there's so much that I want to say, and I'm just going to, like, get in, get out. I, I, I appreciate your take, because it, you, I, I have to go back to the, to the fact that these prophets are speaking in, into what feels like a dark time for God's people. And, and I, I know that the, there's a part of the role of the prophet that is to speak truth to power. But I think that sometimes we forget that there's also this role of the prophet that's here to speak light to the darkness. Um, in my translation, the title of this section is called A Great Light. And so you're talking about the, the people who live in gloom and doom and darkness, that, that this message that Isaiah is bringing to them, it, it, is, it is light for them. And, and I, you know, 
as we are, you know, continue to reflect on MLK, I think of the way it's, it's so much of what we hear, um, at least in, in many of the contexts that I sit in, is the ways that MLK and others like, like him spoke truth to power, those who had perceived power. But one of the things that happens when MLK would get into the pulpit is that he would he would elevate people. So when when I when I hear the you have made the nation great, you have increased its joy, they've rejoiced before you. Like I see the prophet stepping into the pulpit and reminding the people of God that they are not alone. Um, and so it's this dual work of the prophet, right? Um, it it you know there's a lot of work of the prophet, but the, these two sort of things that go hand in hand. Um, and, and so I'm just inspired by that this morning, particularly in the way that you led us through the Isaiah text. So thank you for that. Um, Michael, Christy, you guys got any comments uh, from, from Cameron? Yeah. So, so in, in my, my version of this text, it starts off with the statement that when God's people haven't seen a hint of light or hope of day, God will do something new. And, and I, and I do I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that that speak one wonders to me, like on the simple, the simple aspect of like when things feel really rough, like I promise there's a change coming, but I do think that change does speak to this greater, like idea of oppression that Kim's talking about in this, in this whole, whole text of like, when, when the system feels like it's become complacent, we'll use that language again, like, and people feel like there's no light in sight because the same thing just keeps happening over and over. Then God is going to try something going to do something new like there will be a there will be a change there's a change coming i promise <clears throat> that's where i'm at. i just i love how there's this sense um in the conversation but also in these scriptures that um that the work of the holy spirit in some ways is a is a balancing it's a regulatory power um we see that in the properties of nature you know, um, if you push all the water from, from out of an area, it's got to go somewhere, right? And it's going to come up in another place. Um, or if you allow it to flow evenly, it's going to spread, right? Um, uh, and take the shape of whatever um, space it's in. And I think that um, speaks to this sense of, of balance, of ebb and flow. Um, it, it reminds me, too, of the old preachery saying that our task as prophetic preachers is to um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and what you're talking about in both um, biblical and also um, contemporary prophetic work is this balancing um, both holding hope and accountability to stay in what's hard for the sake of something deeper, better, richer, more whole. Um, and of finding uh, not only our personal best self, but our global best self, our, our corporate best self. If only we had more time, y'all. If only, because there's, oh gosh, we're just like cruising. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break and then we, we'll be back for the rest of Studio Wesley Annex. Hi friends, if we haven't met, my name is Allison and I'm here to talk to you about one of the resources that we have to offer at The Wellness Project.
The Wellness Project has two new cohorts starting this spring, and you should definitely join us. A cohort is a mental health module that has been designed by campus ministers and students on our design team. The first cohort is titled Mental Health Overview and is exactly what it sounds like. There are eight sessions total and each session covers a different topic on mental health and wellness to give you a general overview of what those topics are. The second cohort is called Peer Support and that's four sessions all to do with peer support. We would love to have you join us and if you'd like to sign up, go to studiowesley.org slash wellnessproject. And we're back. And uh, I just want to acknowledge, and he's not going to be happy with me for doing this, but during the break, Michael went to go make some toast, and we're very happy that he's doing it. But I, I just want to acknowledge what just happened here, because um, I just asked him, like, so what are you spreading on your toast, butter or jam? And he's like, what, what are you spreading on your toast, Michael? Um, just so we all can hear. Avocado. Avocado. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you want me so, to show uh, the camera? Uh, yes, that. actually, I oh. think that I think that everybody um, would appreciate uh, that. That's pretty. That looks pretty good, actually. I'm 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 just a tad impressed. Just a tad. I did that in like three minutes. So let's just do a quick check in. Cam, because you showed me what you were drinking right right when we got into the break. Can you show everyone what you're drinking this morning? Yeah, not drinking beer. This is a Topo Chico. It is 9 a.m., so a little early for a beer, and this is just some coffee. Um, the morning essentials. I didn't. I didn't say this, but I wanted to point out in another Studio Wesley annex that Cam was like every time his hand went off screen, it came back with a different drink. Yeah, there were like. <laughs> yeah, three always different... need at least three drink options. Is that? coffee in a pickle jar is that it's in a it's in some kind of jar it's not okay. a pickle jar maybe olives yeah. yeah good good uh sustainability there thank what, you what what's what's in your hand christy what are you what are you oh doing? seriously cold and not in a good way um oh. third cup oh oh <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Michael, I'm excited for how you will edit this section of uh, Studio Wesley Annex this week. I'm super excited. I'm drinking my second cup of coffee right here with my Studio Wesley, I'm sorry, with my Campus City mug. Can't really see it because my, I have three lights now that I use, but there you go, CCW right there. Okay, so with that, we're going to get back into the episode and into the discussion, and I'm going to pick up with the song text this week, and I'm super excited about it. And I'll just say, Psalm 27, if you have any connection to worship um, and, and worship leadership, worship pastoring, the, just the whole worship dynamic, then Psalm 27 is one of those passages of scripture that usually comes up a lot. Like there's just a lot of good songwriting material in Psalm 27. I mean, all the Psalms, um, granted, there's that one Psalm about like smashing someone's face in with a jawbone that doesn't really, you know, we don't get our hands lifted too hot. Well, some of us do. Okay. Anyway, so there's a lot of good content in the Psalm text this week. And I would like to come to it with some questions 
Um, because uh, often I think one of the things that the Psalms do, while they at times will speak affirmatively or speak very directly, um, I think that they also are there to invite us to ask some different questions. And so out the gate of Psalm 27 this week is this this first line that again um, is beautiful um, and used in many, many songs. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Should I fear anyone? And my question is, at what point is it appropriate to ask that, to, to even use these words? I think that there's a conversation about power that is bleeding through the text this week. And as we think about epiphany, um, I think it, it, there, there's, there's um, a conversation about what's being revealed to us. But I, I wonder if even this verse is inviting us to take stock of fears that are sitting underneath the surface. That, um, and I just, I just think about the ways that um, using uh, Isaiah as sort of a, a lead in here, the ways that doom and gloom and darkness, and when we get used to oppression, when we get used to being minimized, we often find safety sort of in these, um, in, in these spaces where it's like, well, it's not going to get any worse than what it is. Um, or this is the way we've always been oppressed. We've always been the people that just think about the people who are walking in darkness. That Isaiah text keeps just resonating in me. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that question, like, do they get to ask this question? Should I fear anyone? Or do we only ask that question when we are sort of like winning the battle? <laughs> do we only ask that question when we, when we can uh, mentally see that like this thing is going to work out. I just feel like it's really important for this question to be asked, um, particularly when the things or the people or the, uh, the, the outcomes that we fear aren't easily accessible, that we actually need some space to dive deeper. And so I start there um, and then I go, I, I go further and, and, and we'll see if I go, you know, spend too much time. But then we, we fast forward to verse four, actually. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It's all I seek. To live in the Lord's house all the days of my life, seeing the Lord's beauty and constantly adoring his temple. My first question is, is there one thing? And I, I'm like... David's like, one thing I ask for, like, is there really one thing? And that's like the question that I ask. Um, and I don't mean to be connecting the psalm to the text that we've read already, but I have to. Because like when we start talking about unity and shared purpose, like I'm like, who's deciding? I used to say this to, you know, in campus ministry. Um, every semester somebody rolls up and was like, let's do this like event with the other campus ministries and we'll all be united. And then people would be like, oh, the Christians are united, it'd be great. Like they, and they'd be like, good, like that's awesome. Like maybe I'll be a part of that. And I always ask that question when, whenever we were talking about unity events on campus, I would always ask that question. Uh, the question, who's deciding what unity looks like? Because the Baptists see unity looking one way and uh, the, the Campus Crusade sees it looking this other way. And then we, United Methodists, who tend to be a little more liberal, progressive in our theology, see unity. So who gets to decide? When I read, I mean, I love at the heart 
one thing I've asked of the Lord, that sort of single-mindedness that David brings. I also am asking, like, who decides what that one thing is? Like, who's, and, and we would say, well, it's the Lord's house, right? It's, it's dwelling in the Lord's house. But I just want to lean in a little bit on that. And again, thinking about people who have, who are used to being told what the one thing is as opposed to being on a journey of discovering for themselves what the one thing is. And so I ask that question, a bit of a disruption of Psalm 27, because all I really want to do is, you know, I've got all these songs of one thing, one thing I've asked of the Lord, uh, you know, and, and so I just want to kind of be there, be there beautifully and just like have the vibe going, but I can't help but ask these questions and just peer a little deeper. Um, so I'll do one more one more piece, and then um, I'll, I'll step out and let my friends uh, kind of speak to me. Uh, verse 8, come, my heart says, seek God's face. Lord, I do seek you. Please don't hide from me. Don't push your servant aside angrily. You have been my help. God who saves, don't neglect me. Don't leave me all alone. And again, it makes me wonder when, when, when these kinds of words are used in worship, I, I know that there's there's this one layer that is, God, don't hide your face from me. And then there's this other layer about the people who often represent God to us. And the ways that we shepherds, I put myself in that category right now, can forget that our leadership, our mentoring, our approach to people is often interpreted as God's interaction with people. And let me just bring it down because my hope is that college age young adults are watching this. And this is not to like bring a ton of pressure, but it's to remember that often just being people who wear the Jesus t-shirt, our interactions with people are, are conduits of how God feels about them. And so it's not like if it's just, if it's not, you know, how do I say, um, if I don't, then, you know, they don't feel, you know, God or, you know, you're the only Jesus people will ever see. I'm not trying to go all the way there. Like, I'm not trying to make you the superhuman uh, that's here to save the world. But it is a question that when people feel like God is not paying attention to them, is there human interaction that is causing that interpretation, that experience with God. And here, like, right, we go right into this, this understanding that in order to speak truth to power, there's a reminder that we humans contribute to oppression when we're not careful. We humans, because we forget our power, because we forget the influence that we have in other people's lives, we may forget that how we treat others could very well not just be, this is how Derek is treating me, but could be interpreted as this is how God must be treating me because of how this person of God is treating me. And so these are the questions. I mean, I could bring questions like this all day to Psalm 27, but I'll just bring it back here again to what I think worship often is trying to do. Worship, when we start singing together, I think on one hand, yes, it's, it's a desire to praise God, a desire to worship God for sure. And also, I think worship is trying to help us get underneath, to, un to, to reveal, to, to pull back some of these layers so that we can see what's really going on in our hearts 
and bring those before God. And so again, it's one of the reasons I love Psalm 27 because there is this sense, and I you know, go back to, even though I ask questions about verse four, I'll just go back here. Um, all I really wanna do is dwell in the Lord's house. But I don't think what David means is just dwell there quietly. I think what David means there is, I want to literally unpack these experiences that I'm having with you, God. And I think that by asking questions in this psalm, we end up engaging in a worship practice that is super vulnerable, super honest, and gets underneath the fear, gets underneath the confusion, gets underneath even the ways that God's people at times can um, be the reasons why we don't see God at work in our own lives. That was a whole lot of stuff. I don't know if any of it really came through. My friends are going to tell me if it did, and they're going to make comments. So, friends. I um I I do want to like jump in on this this I I mean anybody knows that I I take I'm a slow processor but I think this idea of like human interaction like uh kind of driving our our feelings about whether or not God is present in our lives is like I I I cling to that immediately especially as like in the form of like jealousy over other people's like other people's lives are doing really well mine isn't so now I'm like God where where are you where are you for me you know which like obviously obviously doesn't like hold up but it's the the impulse reaction um i also wonder if some of this stems back to like um the holistic teaching of like god answering prayer of like god can answer anything but he also like he decides when and how and why and sometimes we don't get those answers we literally had like a children's message at church the other day that was like relating like God answering prayer to like whether or not your parent allows you to eat junk food when before a meal, like, like your parent like knows better. So they don't always, you know, let you do this at the time that you want to. That doesn't mean that it's bad. Sorry. This is a total tangent. I just like, I just love that you, you bring that, you bring that into it of like, yeah, the, the human side kind of driving whether or not, we feel God's presence. I think that's a, that's a strong thing to constantly be thinking about. I have so many thoughts. It's ridiculous. Um, and I'm not sure where to start. So I'm just going to dive in. Um, the first question I have, I'm going to question back. And the, the first question I have is um, how clear we are about what it means to be in the house of the Lord. Like, what does that mean? Is this inviting us into um you know, as, as uh, Rohr and so many others would say, the unitive consciousness, right? Um, that, that at all times we're one with God, that the deepest things we can know are to be completely united with God, which helps us then to be united with all whom God has made um, and, and all of creation that God has made and, um, and to see our deep worth and the deep worth of others. Yeah. Um, so, could there be any more sacred space than that? Um, or is it really just about like, I need to be in worship in a space where I can do this work? I have that question. Um, when you were talking about the fear part at the beginning, I was flashing back to um, this amazing, like one of the, the highest moments of my life. Honestly, um, I had taken my kids when um, uh, they were, gosh, probably, 
I don't know, eight and 12, something like that, um, to Washington, D.C. for the first time, just the three of us. And we happened upon, like divine appointment happened upon a very small lecture that was being offered by Representative John Lewis. And we, um, it was specifically for teachers and students and only teachers and students were allowed to ask questions. And so uh, being a professor and then there with my children, it was like just so magic. Um, but we we were in the front row. I mean, he held my my baby girl's face in his hands. You know, it was so it was magical. Um, but uh, but my children both asked questions, and my son's question was, um, you know, knowing that you so often had to prepare for things that were so difficult, so scary, you could have been really hurt. You were really hurt, right? Um, you nearly died. Like you could have been arrested. You could you could have been killed. What? How did you mentally prepare for that? I mean, what made you mentally, emotionally, spiritually able to put yourself in that position over and over and over again? And he just very quickly, after, I mean, he took a pause and he looked my boy right in the eyes and just said, sometimes you encounter things in life that just let you know how worth it it is, you know, that it's worth it. Um and so um, my concern for our, you know, the general welfare of our spiritual formation, um, you know, throughout the decades, as I look, you know, back at the last uh, 50 or 100 years, is that um, that as a church, we fail to disciple people in ways that are deep enough to push them into that level of a space, right? Um, that um, that we've made it about ascent to a personality or being in the worship space, right? We've made it about singing beautiful music or having the right lighting effects or the right style or whatever. Yeah, um, or great attendance at our programs rather than making it about how attentive we are to the presence, which is why I keep coming back to that word, I guess, right? Um, so what does it mean to be in the house of the Lord in that way, to want the one thing um, is the is to want the unity and the companionship of Christ in the way that Christ's self, own self has it, right? In John 17, when he says, I, I'm asking on behalf of all my disciples, right, that all the people that you gave me, that I would have this same relationship with you, that they could have this same relationship with you that I have. Um, so anyway, that's my 32 cents. <laughs> Christy, I love that. And, and I, I really glommed onto, uh, I glommed, I glommed onto one of the phrases that you used, which was a sent to a personality. Um, and I'm thinking still about uh, Derek asking, how do we, how do we manage the reality that folks who are in mentoring or discipling positions within the church or within the faith, how do we manage the reality that we are the presence of God to the folks that we mentor or disciple. And I think that sometimes asking that question or holding oneself to that sort of standard has been just an ascent to personality, what you think that you ought to be, um, which is often not necessarily witness to uh, God's presence in our life, but is rather um, a replication of who we think we ought to be according to cultural uh, and conformative church standards. Um, so when we ask these questions, like, uh, 
how, how am I a representative of God in my community? How do I dwell in the tents of the Lord? How, how do I um, attend to the presence that permits me to put one foot in front of the other in pursuit of um, witness to God's kingdom in the way that John Lewis did? Uh, I, for me, I, I have to hold fast to this idea of God's grace because I am limited and I and I am going to wake up every day and make mistakes. And I am um, not perfect. Uh, but I also hold fast to the notion that um, faith in, in whatever the good is, as it's presented in Jesus Christ, um, will deliver me to... Uh, a place where I find myself stumbling occasionally, like John Lewis said that he did, into the reality that all of this is worth it. It's worth it. Wow. It's honestly, Cam, such a cool segue into the gospel text. Um, you, you just you just go right into it. Just go there. Yeah, that was such a cool segue. When you were talking yeah. about um, bringing our full self and bringing our authentic um, self rather than trying to take on the image of, um, what we think we're supposed to be as a leader. Um, I remember when I first came onto campus at FGCU and I walked into the, um, like campus ministers association meeting, um, the first time and just laughing, going like, well, I won't have to do much to bring diversity to this space. I was the only woman, um, everybody in the room, save for one was, um, mid twenties had the same, uh, glasses frames, had the same, uh, gelled flip up hair situation, short sleeve plaid button down jeans and, um, you know, and, uh, chocks. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, I just have to breathe in this room to make something different. Um, apparent on campus. But I, I laugh about that and think, um, you know, how much of my ministry I was willing to give away, believing that I wasn't enough or that I wasn't the image of what was um, a good pastor or the image of um, what other people construed to be useful or gifted or effective in the setting. And, you know, I just, I keep returning to that. And so this is what um, comes up for me in the gospel text today. And it's this text has never hit me that way before. So I, I thank all of you for that. Um, I, I do want to start out by saying is the link between this text and the Isaiah passage uh, that Cameron shared for us is um, not lost on me that um, that now in the gospel, we have um, Jesus actually going and taking up residence and making his home in this area of Zebulun and Naphtali that had had uh, so much darkness and difficulty and strain, and now um, God's own self takes up residence there. Isn't that like just like God to do it that way? Um, but the the piece that drew my attention the most is um, is this piece here in. Uh, let me find the number so I can tell you the right thing. Um, in verses eighteen and nineteen, so Jesus. Um, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they were fishers, right? It's significant that the gospel recording gives the account, this is who they were. This is what they did. This is um, the context out of which Jesus calls them. 
And Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. So yes, their context changed when they followed Jesus. Yes, their relationships changed when they followed Jesus. But isn't it interesting that um, the Jesus doesn't say, you've been a fisher person, now I'm going to take you completely out of that and make you into something completely different. But rather, I'm going to take the skills, the knowledge, the things that have formed and shaped you, the things that make you who you are, and and allow you to live into that in a more expansive way that will benefit the kingdom. Um, And I think so often we shortchange ourselves believing that um, whatever's made us for ill or for good, right? Um, The traumas and the wounds we have right alongside of any positive experiences of growth or education or professional skills, somehow um, that all of that will have to be set aside or that it would be wasted um, in order to follow God into this new space because we believe that we have to become an image of other people we've seen doing this work that we think are... um, you know, sort of our, our pedestalized, if that's a word, of the, our, our um, pedestalized images of what we think would be good in that role, rather than authentically bringing who we are, our gifts, our experiences, our skills. Um, and, um, and to me, this is so aligned with this idea of the, what's the one thing, you know, the one thing that I long for to be, um, to be so aligned with the heart of God, to be so um, deeply understanding of my own belovedness to the point that I can stand confidently in that space and, and also see the belovedness of others, also see the belovedness of creation. Um, and in that space, um, at least in, in my limited experience, this is the space from which we can function as spiritual leaders and do the least harm. Um, because we're we're fully ourselves and we don't uh, need to uh, create hierarchies or abuse power or um, or act or behave in ways that make it seem like we have it all together and we know what we're doing because we really don't, right? We're all still learning. Um, it allows us to be vulnerable about the places we're still learning and growing so that we can acknowledge that openly in front of the people we serve. And I just think all of that works together and so much of it is saying, they were fishers. And now he says, now let me help you grow those skills, not remove you from them, but let me help you grow and, um, and allow that to be generative in a, in a new kind of way. I, I experienced that a lot in my own life because I, um, you know, my undergraduate time, I majored in music. Um, I was a music performance major. I studied opera. I don't sing opera very much anymore. Right? Like there's not a lot of context in which Um, That's a welcome gift in the church very often. Um, But, um, but I use those skills every day and people, but people ask me who knew me in that part of my life and say like, oh gosh, it's such a shame. Oh, it's such a waste. You spent all those years and spent all that money. And I go, no, you don't understand, right? Like I do ministry out of my artistry. This is who I am. I understand myself as pastor, but first as, as artist, as creative, that's who God made me to be. And that's, um, the best stuff of my ministry of my life has come out of um, my standing in that space squarely and knowing God made me to, to serve in this way. So I don't always do that perfectly and I struggle with it all the time. But um, but I think if we can reorient ourselves to that kind of integrity 
um, mindset, that congruent mindset that God really did make us good, that God um, loves us and wants us the way that we are and can use who we are um, effectively to uh, to to create to help create the inbreaking right to participate in the inbreaking then uh, we're better for it. Yeah, I love that. So when I was in seminary, I studied um, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, um, mentors, one of his own mentors, and it was Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman has this phrase. Um, that that we we are called to listen for the sound of the genuine um, and that the sound of the genuine is god inspired and thurman goes on to say that listening for the sound of the genuine in our lives listening to our lives learning how to live with integrity learning who we are as god's folks is really 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 hard work i think that there's an attraction to um, being told who we are I think that there's sometimes a desire for um, our identities to be given to us, the questions of our identity, the question of what we want, um, because paying attention to um, our desire and our identities in ways that are authentic, that do encourage integrity, that allow us to be who we are in community um, takes time and it takes patience and it takes a willingness to go deep. Um, and so I, you know, when I, when I hear you, when I hear us reflect on, on that this morning, I'm encouraged to continue to um, do the work and, and know that the journey doesn't end, that the process of becoming who you are is a lifelong journey. Um, and that there's always more discovery to be had. When I was, um, I, so I taught college freshmen for a while and I taught intro to non or intro to acting for non-majors. So a bunch of students with wildly different majors in a university coming together for an acting class. And, you know, every, like there's a lot of insecurity and everything that goes into that. But like to the way that I found the best circumnavigate that was like always to start the class with like this conversation about how each degree that everybody had though not acting how it like brought so much to the table in the world of acting and how that that allowed everybody that that's what all those uniquenesses and like degrees and everything that people were pursuing those skill sets that they had all could translate into this new thing that we were all doing together <clears throat> and i do think that that's like that in like the churches that i felt the most comfortable in and the most like affirmed and seen in is because like that is kind of the mentality that the church structure takes which is like what literally whatever makes you you is what like we want to see like that's that that's what you bring to the table and that's what we want like we want to encourage you in and we want we want you to bring whatever you have to the, to the table even if we know nothing about it and I, I yeah i just think that's that's really cool i just christy i appreciate you so much and, um, you know, it's reflecting on what you just gave to us. I wonder in what ways unity is hard to come by because we leaders don't bring our authentic self to the work. And so it turns into cults of personality 
as opposed to individuals who are also on their journey. And part of their journey is that they're bringing other people with them. And, and this is where, you know, for emerging leaders, I think it becomes really interesting. Who do you want to arrive as? Do you want to arrive as someone who is constantly trying to be someone they think they're supposed to be? Or do you want to arrive as someone who is continuously learning who they really are? And I would just say that I think that that's light for people. That it's light and darkness when someone comes on the scene as their honest self and not as a, um, a projection of who they wish they were. And, I, and I'll just add as we're closing here in Epiphany, I just wonder in what ways the text is inviting each one of us to, to, to ask those questions about are we, like we're wanting God to reveal God's self to us. And that's, that's one of the places, one of the highlights of Epiphany. But I wonder if God's like, I would like you to reveal yourself to me. <laughs> I would like you to bring your truth, whether that's, you know, I truly am afraid and I truly don't know what the one thing is, or I truly am in gloom and darkness and, or I truly want to be complacent. <laughs> Just, uh, well, you let me, like, what is it, you know, that, that is true about us? And I, and I wonder if that's an invitation uh, as well in this season of Epiphany to begin to reveal ourselves to ourselves, to our communities, um, and even to our God. Um, such a lovely conversation. Solid, solid conversation today. Uh, Christy, I'm going to ask you if you could close us in prayer. Will you pray with me? Loving God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Loving God who loves us even while knowing all of that. We thank you. Um, that you see us and you love us anyhow. We ask that um, that as we pray through and consider these texts, that you would help us to do the deep work. Let us get involved with it. Let us get engaged with it in a way that allows us to be transformed by it so that we might be um, overcome by your perfect love in a way that changes us and changes the world around us. In the name of the creator, in the name of the redeemer, in the name of the sustainer, we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh my gosh, friends. Thank you so much, Christy. You're, you are light. You bring <laughs> so much light uh, to our worlds. Thank you for joining us. Cameron, you're just an incredible human. So grateful for you. Michael, you're brilliant. You just, you bring the brilliance to the table. Friends, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll see you next week for another episode of Studio Wesley Annex. Cheers.